This is Daniel Figelli. You're listening to the AI in Business podcast, where non-technical professionals come to stay ahead of the AI curve. And you're also tuned in to episode five of five of this special series on achieving ROI in early AI projects. We've heard from leaders from Intel and Oracle and other big names. And we're wrapping this series up with someone from the startup world. So we've had five episodes in five days. It's been a lot. And many of you have been drinking from the fire hose tuned in with us. I appreciate having you with us as a listener. And I hope you get a lot out of this final episode in the series. Our interviewee is Nikunj Mehta. For the last 10 years, he has run Falconry, which is an AI services business focused on heavy industry and manufacturing in the Bay Area. He previously held a VP position at C3.ai, one of the very well-known companies at that intersection. Working with a lot of large legacy enterprises, Nikunj has learned a lot about what it takes to have AI lead to ROI and has some firm opinions about what new leaders can do to steer their early projects in the direction of being able to find some tangible result, something we can show leadership, something we can use to build momentum. That's what everybody wants. That's what this series is about. And there's two writer downers from this episode, as far as I'm concerned. One is around the way that Nikunj describes the portfolio approach, being able to find a number of related AI projects and capabilities that have a high likelihood of potentially turning into a win. He goes into some detail about how to build out what that early portfolio of projects might look like, and that is more than useful advice. And he also talks about, counterintuitively, why we might not want to go after the big, hairy, super important goal within the organization or the enterprise that we're operating in. Why sometimes those big and most urgent, most important objectives are really not the best fit for early AI projects. I actually happen to agree with him, but I know that we've had guests from large organizations like Cognizant, for example, who've kind of had the other opinion, but I think Nick Kunj makes a pretty compelling argument here from his perspective, and it's one that I think is worth considering for essentially any leader looking to find a first project that's going to have the highest likelihood of going to their boss and saying, hey, I've got some great results for you. And again, that's what we're looking to achieve here. So some great hands-on experience from Nikunj's last 10 years. He and I have stayed in touch via LinkedIn over the last year after he was on our other show, the AI Consulting Podcast, about one year ago. And it was great to be able to have an excuse to pull him back in with us. So this is the last episode of this five-part series. In about three months, we're going to do another five-part series on a different theme. So we'll be going back to our usual two episodes a week moving forward. At the end of this episode, after Nikunj is done with his points, I will touch briefly on the AI ROI reports that we are making available during this special podcast launch period. So as we're running this special series, we're also making an AI ROI report available to our listeners, uh, and that's going to be ending on Monday. I'll touch on that in the outro, but without further ado, let's fly into this episode. We've got some great insights on project selection. This is Nikunj Mehta here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Nikunj, we're speaking here on finding ROI for early AI projects. I think the best way to frame this question would be this. If you're speaking to an enterprise leader, you know, in whatever industry, obviously you guys work a lot in heavy industry, but, you know, in in any sector, and they're essentially telling you, hey, I really want to dive into my first AI project, but I'd like to make sure I can prove out an ROI and make sure this is something valuable for the company. What kind of critical advice would you give them at that point? Yeah, I think AI executives across a variety of sectors are 
relatively well-informed these days about AI. I think it has changed a lot in two years. And one of the things they are looking to understand is what kind of a time frame and which people within their organization would be able to see the impact of AI, beneficial impact of AI. And that's something that executives are developing an early sense of before they really engage with an AI provider. It is important that this engagement be real, It may that it be basically on a daily basis or, or comparable, and that those people who are engaging with the AI provider are able to apply their own judgment for how things are going. And the simple reason for it is that it's relatively common for AI providers to ask for a six-figure amount and to say, give us the data and we'll come back and we'll show you. And it could be a few months before they do that. And the risk of that effort failing is high, both because of AI and data problems, but also because the solution was not invented here and nobody really believes they understand the method or how it can be replicated. And so I believe that executives are very keen keenly aware that it cannot be done behind their backs. It has to be done in front of them and their team has to feel like they understand what's going on and develop confidence in it. That's the first advice I would give to an executive. The second advice that I've given to executives is that because the challenge of applying AI is actually not on their most important single problem. Now, a single problem could be the conflict between humans and machines in their yard areas. Like that might be their biggest uh, reason to consider AI. Challenges are actually often spread across a wide variety of areas. Now, here is an example of safety. And yard safety is only one of the safety issues. There is still safety within the mills as well. And the difficulty that executives often run into is should they focus on the single largest problem, which might only be 20% of their total set of problems, or on their long tail. And the single largest problem tends to be a hit or a miss. And this is more so the case with predictive maintenance. Uh, You can probably get great outcomes on perhaps your motors, pumps, and maybe even compressors, some simple ones. But you can't really get much benefit on your pipes, on your tanks, etc., That's because those things are harder problems to solve. Predictive maintenance generally has not been able to solve them. But this is what ends up happening. And when executives are forced to make a choice, they often will go with either a sure shot provider of AI-based outcomes, which applies to a small category of problems that they have. But what I would encourage them to do is to look at those who can help them on the long tail of their problems. And that's based on my experience working, especially with the steel industry, and also in the defense industry, that what tends to be the the single largest problem is often being attacked from many different fronts. And so even if you were to solve it with AI, in the same time, it's likely that it's also being solved by engineering. And you might find out sometime later, maybe a year or so later, that that problem is no longer important to be solved by AI. And now you will be back to square one. You will have not shown any ROI you would have not made any impact on the company outside of that one problem. And you might have a situation where you have yet to understand how you are going to make an impact on the long tail. And so you might be starting again from the drawing board. And that is the risk for an executive to consider. This is one of the reasons why I say 
don't start with just one problem. You have to collect a number of problems and try to solve them in parallel. And that gives you confidence that this is not a one-trick pony. Hmm. Well, all right. Let me try to boil this down. So this is this is a solid advice. We've gotten different things from different vendors, and of course, you know, as a market research firm, we're always you know we, we aim to gather multiple perspectives because every now and again we'll have you know a very large consultancy, let's say one of the global integration firms, you know, be like, well, you know, pick the biggest boldest thing and you know really go hard at it. And of course, maybe that behooves their interests in terms of the amount of investment involved, and, and so we always have more than one person on an interview series. But you've got a bit of a different bit of advice here, and so and this resonates with with some previous conversations. It sounds like there's two things I'm going to try to boil down, and then I'd, I'd love for you to clarify for the listeners, because I really want the listeners to be able to apply some of your hard-learned lessons here. One of them is, often, the big, hairy, gigantic challenge within the business is not the right place to start with AI, because A, sometimes, well, number one, no one project is like guaranteed to succeed with AI. So it's going to be a dice roll with AI as, and, and I don't mean that in, a, in an insulting way. I'm just saying we can't necessarily guarantee AI is always going to win. So if we have our mo- one big, most mission critical thing, well, sometimes maybe AI is not the best fit for that because a probabilistic solution to your most mission critical thing, maybe just uh, not the best start. Maybe that's one thing, you know, we just can't endure the risk. We can't endure the R&D on something so important. And also, like you said, maybe seven other teams are working on it at the same damn time. And so it's going to be really busy and really hard to figure out, did my AI project actually contribute versus the 18 other teams working on this? So that that's one thing. Did I summarize that one? Well, I have a second point I yes. need to kind of summarize. Okay. Okay, good. So um, yes, you did. So that's point number one. Point number two, you're talking about a concept that we've, we've heard brought up. We had a, an AI leader from Intel come on and talk about this. We had a one of our most downloaded episodes ever is around measuring ROI with the chief practice officer of Fractal Analytics, a very big uh, consultancy in the AI space. Uh, that, yep, yeah, I'm sure you are, and and they obviously operate in slightly different industries than you, but they're they've got a lot of smart folks, and. In both those interviews, Intel and Fractal, there was this idea of kind of the portfolio model, so to speak. So let's put on the table the various problems. Let's figure out which of them might be the might be well suited for AI, and then let's find short burst ways of assessing the data, testing some of kind of our fundamental assumptions, and figuring out which of these might have traction versus just sniping one and running all the way with that one. Did that idea of kind of prioritizing them based on their fit for AI and their priority, and then kind of doing some early hypothesis testing. Is that the way that you would describe it? Or how would you approach this kind of portfolio idea that you're articulating? Yeah, the portfolio idea is premised on a single method being replicated and not simply for the purposes of model building, but placing the AI capability in the hands of the targeted end user. So portfolio capability has to be seen as something that can be deployed and not something that can be uh, developed or tested alone. Then secondly, the approaches that, that I've seen generally work, as you were thinking, you know, predictive maintenance tends to be a general capability that is needed in industrial organizations. Now, you could think about roughly two different ways in which you can go after predictive maintenance. One is you find specific sensors for the type of equipment where you have problems, and use the analysis available with those sensors to solve those problems. The other is you bring in a sensor data AI that works with a general set of data sources from sensors and can be applied to a variety of problems pertaining to the data that is captured by sensors. My 
finding has generally been that when it's early days of a technology, that may not sound like great advice, but just like with databases, increasingly we are finding that that this classification of the the underlying method and matching that against the portfolio need is the better approach for people to plan. So while at the early stages, we could look at every provider, I expect that we're going to stabilize this. And we are seeing this in the steel industry, where there is the computer vision AI for safety. Cameras are mounted everywhere. And they are used also for MES or for tracking purposes. But then when it comes to predictive maintenance and quality improvement, there it is more seen to be done through sensors and sensor data AI. The best providers are the ones that would do the most provisioning of capability in the case of sensor data AI, for example. And over time, that is what everybody will come across as the options that they have available. When you say the best are the ones that are best at provisioning, I'm trying to think for the audience's sake, you know, what can they take home from this? In other words, how can they become better at provisioning or how should they think about provisioning? Because it does feel like this really ties to ROI, which is the point of the series here. What kind of advice or detail do you have, I guess, around that concept? Right. So those days where you bring in an AI specialist team and they would bring their frameworks and various specialists to work with your end user organization, like it used to be a pretty heavy lift, apply or provision AI against a set of problems. Increasingly, there is automation. So you hear about auto ML, data ops, ML ops, and increasingly automation is a key part of a lot of this. So when I talk about provisioning of this AI, what I mean is connecting the AI, which is generally a learning and inference engine, to the data sources and letting the AI talk to the end users through an interface that those end users will understand and for that AI to learn and improve on its own. That's what I mean. And naturally, this is an approach that works better at scale, such as what we have to deal with, which is terabytes of data coming from a single mill over a course of a month. That's generally how the plant managers or maintenance managers are thinking about their needs is, I have this mill, here's how much you know improvement I need, 5%, 2%. I'm willing to put that on somebody's task list so that we can square that away and there's a known method by which that is to be executed. So that's what we mean by provisioning it. Okay. And I feel like it's it's also maybe the second time that you've brought up the idea of kind of thinking with the end user in mind in terms of how this is going to be applied, uh, who's going to have this in their hands. Of course, as you'd mentioned before, there's the problem of, you know, let's give the vendor the data. They go run away to some dark corner. They come back and say, okay, we have it. Uh, and then we don't have trust, we don't have buy-in, we don't have a consideration for the user. You mentioned those initial issues, which we might think of as sort of mishaps on the road to achieving an ROI. What might it look like from a very early days? I'm thinking of myself as the listener right now. I operate in a, in a large enterprise, or maybe I serve big enterprises. We're kind of assessing multiple projects. We're not necessarily going for the whale here. We're going for a number of the projects that might be more accessible that we could kind of test out a little bit. And I want to Take to heart this advice around beginning with the user's kind of path in mind. I know you guys operate in heavy industry. Maybe there's a way to explain this in an industry agnostic way. How would you encourage enterprise leaders to yeah. consider that as part of their early project selection ROI considerations, that, that user experience? Right. So this is new phenomenon we are observing in the AI space. Another example is Google with, it, with its vision AI, uh, where it is 
scanning a whole bunch of images and putting boxes around people's uh, or other around uh, regions within the picture and asking somebody knowledgeable of the domain what does that represent is this something alarming does it need reaction uh, in that sense it's not very different from how photo album software have operated now for a few years putting a box around something that needs attention that was surfaced by the ai but the user input serves to improve the ai that in my mind is the way to engage a user is to make it possible for them to interact with the ai in a conversational type of a sense uh, not necessarily chatbot we've seen tremendous success when those interfaces are done right because it eliminates the dependence of perfect labels and the cost of labeling which is prohibitively high in industrial context uh, but it also makes the people who provide those labels be the owner of that ai because they are the ones who tra- train that ai yeah and of course being able to kind of consider where this human in the loop what you're saying is basically user in the loop it's not some side team that works on ai it's the people actually interacting with the outputs of the ai they're also the ones training them would would you go so far to say and i don't know if you would say this in industry specifically or if you would say this in any sector specifically that you tend to bias towards early projects that can always have the user as part of the feedback loop is is there a correlation yeah, there is a relationship yes so i think complexity and idiosyncrasy are tied to who can do this and at what stage it happens i would say that when you're trying to recognize people in images that's neither idiosyncratic nor complex there's a lot of technology that has been trained same thing is true for second sentiment recognition in published text like these are the kinds of things for which it is better to pay a professional to do the labeling and that that professional does not have to be within the organization yeah on the opposite end of the spectrum are life and death situations are questions of fairness where it has to be done under regulated context by people who are qualified to do it and then what i was talking about is closer to that but not quite as extreme and that tends to happen more in the industrial world because there is a lot of bespokeness in their operation and so what knowledge is required for them to operate those plants and produce a profitable outcome you can just go out on the street and find somebody to do that especially without any context or contact of that industrial organization so yeah so it sounds like certainly there are circumstances where the labeling could and should happen way outside of you know your building your business i mean there's whole companies like appen and imerit uh many of whom have been on the show over the years that will sort of do this but to your point there's some cases where it really has to be done by the person boots on the ground who's close to that process i'm trying to maybe nutshell a few things yeah. here nakunj for the wrap up of this episode and then i'm going to i'm going to have you maybe clarify as we as we wrap because i know there's so many ideas that we've juggled back and forth one is sort of maybe not tackling the whale but but tackling some of those valuable tuna fish uh, so to speak i don't know how to carry that that analogy forward but being able to prioritize those in the way that you talked about and then also starting from the beginning when we're prioritizing those projects around you know their viability their importance but also how the end user will actually use them thinking about that from the beginning not in a hypothetical context but in a real world context and allowing that to to let us inform our judgment as to which ones are maybe more or less important any other final points you'd bear in mind for an enterprise leader who really wants to have the best chance of having an ROI for a first project yeah i mean 
this is something that I've said recently um, in your LinkedIn posts as well, that data is like the new coffee. It's huh. not the new oil because huh. data that you don't use is only as good as the rose fertilizer. <laughs> um, and this is increasingly the case with data that has short half-life. Now, I don't know where the, all that applies, but it definitely applies in the industrial context. I would imagine that it also applies most in, other businesses. Um, yeah, and yeah, a lot of text, yeah, text-oriented business. Totally, yeah. And we have to realize that uh, there are a lot of flaws in data that are not apparent until you actually start looking at it to try and make sense of it. And so there has been the prevalence of creating data lakes, and we've worked with such customers who put a lot of stuff into data lakes never looked at it. Yeah. That was a nightmare when they started to first do something with it to see how badly formed it was and how utterly unusable two thirds of that data was. Yeah. Yeah. It became a data swamp and not a data lake. And I this idea of coffee is a good one. I, I like this analogy. What you're saying is that it's not like oil where you can just keep it in the bowel forever and then at some point it's valuable. You really do need to consider about the recency of this data and don't just think about bulk, but think about that quality and throughput as well. That's right. Cool. Yeah, okay. I think it's important for people not to treasure their data for too long in the hopes that they can create value out of it. There's also the question of coding sometimes. So we have to realize that we need to be able to make use of that precious resource. But however precious it might be, one, it is a collective resource, and two, it will lose its value very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that definitely reminds me to use the uh, iced coffee I have in my refrigerator. That's a nice reminder on that front. And also, hopefully a good reminder for those of you who are tuned in right now in terms of selecting and measuring the ROI of your early AI projects. Nick Kunj, I've really valued your perspective. It's been great to chat with you after we had you on about a year ago. Really glad to have you with us again on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. And appreciate uh, the attention. And I hope folks will not store coffee in the refrigerator for too long. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. I certainly liked the idea that Nikunj has around being able to go after what might be the tuna fish as opposed to the whale of your problems. He had some good analogies in there. And I think when it comes to, again, finding a place to land that is not just a big project that has a chance of having an impact, but maybe smaller project that has an even higher chance of having tangible ROI. I happen to agree with them. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. And I hope that you've enjoyed this series. If you listen to all five episodes, a huge high five. Any of you who are, are longtime listeners, feel free to message me on LinkedIn. Easy to find me at Dan Figella. Let me know what you thought about this series. What is a future topic you'd like to see us explore with big deal executives at Fortune 500 companies or Fortune 100 companies or exciting startups? What are some other cool topics that we might pick apart? I'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn or feel free to reply to one of our email newsletters. I want to mention our ROI report before I wrap up here. So from now until Monday night, it's midnight Pacific is technically when we're wrapping it up. We are giving away uh, copies of our AI ROI cheat sheet report, which is normally retailed for some $300 on the report section of Emerge.com for free for folks who decide to join our Emerge Plus membership. Some of you listeners are already Emerge Plus members. For those of you who aren't, Emerge Plus is our private platform where we have all of our AI frameworks and infographics for building an AI strategy 
calibrating and measuring AI ROI, AI adoption, and more. So if you want actionable insights in a very simple visual format that you can use with your clients or you can use within your own teams, Emerge Plus is where you'll want to go. It's also where you can unlock our full AI ROI use case library. We have use cases in literally every sector. So if you want to search for just NLP use cases in just healthcare and life sciences, or just fraud use cases in just financial services, there's all kinds of search features only made available to Plus members and Plus members have an unimpinged access to our AI white papers, as well as to our full use case library. So if you want to take what you've learned here and put it in action, and you want simple guides and frameworks to help you do that, as well as a library of use cases, Emerge Plus is worth checking out. You can go to EMERG j.com slash r7 that's r as in roger and then the number seven emerj.com slash r7 and you can learn more about that report which is going to be free until the end of monday so hopefully we'll have some of you as new members in our emerge plus community but again as i mentioned at the top of this outro i appreciate you being here listening we've had a lot of fun putting together these series and these are based off of suggestions from listeners and from newsletter subscribers so appreciate you guys we're really aiming to deliver this is our fourth month, over 100,000 downloads a month, and we could not be happier about it. So really looking forward to continue to grow with you folks. Let us know about your future ideas. Thanks again for tuning in. Next week, we'll be back to the normal cadence. We're going to talk about AI success factors on Monday in our normal kickoff episode, and then back to use cases and trends on Tuesdays. So I look forward to catching you then. Thanks so much.